This is the, the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 1, 16 through 32. Read along with me. Um, it's a little long, but it's spicy, so I think it's going to keep your attention. This is Paul saying, for, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Basically, no matter what your religious background is, this gospel's for you. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the spicy part. For the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, particularly his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he's made. So we are without excuse. For although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools And we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to their nature. And men likewise, they gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We were full of all envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to our parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though we knew God's eternal decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. We need to pray. Lord Jesus, perhaps this passage, these words of yours uh, are kind of confusing. How do they square with the stuff we just talked about, this apparent good news How do words like that, adjectives like that, that actually come from your mouth to describe the way we entered this world, how does that square with you being one we can trust and love, you being one who shares your life with us? We pray that tonight you would help us to see how, uh, though you speak this hard diagnosis to us, you intend to do it, to come to us with cure. Give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you, otherwise... We have no hope of seeing or hearing you tonight. We ask this in your name, that you do it because you love to do it. Amen. All right, thanks for standing. Heavy stuff, huh? We'll kind of take it a little bit at a time. Even if you're not a news junkie, you've probably uh, heard about, at least uh, in one way or another, this Ebola epidemic that's happening in West Africa. 
Have you heard about it? Ebola is, most people say, the most feared and terrifying virus humanity has faced with in this generation. This outbreak going on right now, uh, more people have already died in the past three or four months than all of the recorded deaths in human history before. It's huge. People are dying by the scores every day, and they don't even have an accurate count of how bad the damage is. Uh, and it's spreading across country to country as people fly to another country, they get sick, and it's extremely, extremely contagious. Uh, if, you, if, if, if your sister had Ebola and she cried and her tear landed on the countertop and a week later you grazed your hand past it, you get Ebola and you die. And so do 90% of the people who come down with this virus. 90%. In a room like this, that would leave about five or six of you alive. So this is what's going on in West Africa. And, and those stats and kind of knowing a little bit about this virus makes it all the more surprising when I read an article a few weeks ago that said there are villages in uh, Liberia where the people are kind of organizing mobs and they are going and they're like burning down the Ebola treatment centers and they are literally running the doctors who've come in from all over the world to try to deal with this and stamp this out before it goes worldwide. Uh, they're literally running the doctors out of the town at the end of a knife. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. What? Did you just hear what the virus is like? And then you're, you're telling me they're running the doctors out of town and burning the treatment places uh, for this horrible disease. Uh, and so this article was going into talking about uh, the, the, the very sad story about all, of, all these villagers know is that when doctors show up in these spacesuits they have to wear, uh, they take someone with them who, who seemed just like they had a cold, and the next time they see that person is when they come home in a body bag. And that happens again and again and again. And so these villagers begin to say, well, the doctors are killing them. The doctors are kidnapping our people. They're killing them or poisoning them, and they're bringing them back to us once they're dead. Now, we know a little bit better, right? Uh, just because firefighters are always at fires doesn't mean firefighters start fires. Doctors are there because they're seeking to treat and help these people. Because if you're treated early, there is a higher chance of survival. But they mistook the doctor for someone who is poisoning and infecting the people. And so uh, when somebody came down, the symptoms of Ebola, the way they started, just a common cold. Um, uh, you know when you're first getting that sense of having a cold, you're, like you're a little more weary and droopy. Uh, and then a few days later, it turns into a really high fever, vomiting, diarrhea. And then in the last stages, it's like just hemorrhaging, bleeding. And then your organs shut down. And so when these people got the earlier innocent symptoms, like a cold, they're just like, this is a cold. The doctors are lying to us. Get out of town. This isn't Ebola. This is just a cold. Leave. We don't need you here. And, and they're pushing these people away because they've rejected, in a sense, the diagnosis, though these doctors are worldwide experts on these epidemics. And they said, they're looking at these people. They're looking at their symptoms and saying, you have every symptom of Ebola, and the people are rejecting the diagnosis. They're saying, no, I don't. And because they reject the diagnosis, they reject the doctor. And because they reject the doctor, they reject the cure. This is serious business. Whose diagnosis are you going to believe? Because those people's life depends on it. And part of what Paul is saying here in Romans 1, the second half, is your life also depends on whose diagnosis you believe. And the consequences are more grave. 
uh, with, with, with kind of what story, which doctor we believe. Because it's the same thing medically as it is spiritually. If you reject the diagnosis, you also, maybe inadvertently, you reject the doctor and the cure as well. You don't go to the hospital unless you're sick. You don't listen to the doctor unless you believe that he actually has some knowledge of what's wrong with you. And you don't take the medicine unless you believe it's going to work. So these are really big stakes with Ebola. They're also really big stakes with our souls because Paul, in a sense, is holding up a mirror right at the beginning of his letter. We, he includes himself, we have all the symptoms of something as destructive, as fatal, potentially fatal, uh, as Ebola. And the question is, do we believe the diagnosis? Do we believe the symptoms match up? Or are we like these villagers who are saying, it's just a cold? It's just a little bit of anxiety. It's just I'm stressed out. It's just I wasn't raised in the best house. It's just people don't love me the way I need to be loved. Which diagnosis are you putting your eggs in? Which basket are you putting your eggs in about what's wrong with you, with me? Now, the stakes are really high. Now, here's the other thing. Apart from those doctors in that little village, in these villages in, in Liberia, if those people have any hope of surviving, guess what it's going to take? Those doctors are going to have to go into the midst of the disease, and they're going to have to get up in people's faces, and they're going to have to confront them, and they're going to have to educate them in a sense and say, hey, look, these are the symptoms of this disease. This is what you're dealing with right now. Perfect match. Here's the people that we've helped. Come with us. We have a treatment that will, that will help you. For some people, will cure you, will get you better. Uh, and so there has to be that confrontation. The worst possible thing that could happen is if those doctors wash their hands of that situation and those villagers get what they want. What they want is to be left alone. If they get what they want, they die. And so for those doctors, there has to be that face-to-face -face confrontation. And again, that's what Paul is doing here. What's the diagnosis? We'll spend a good bit of time talking about this and a little bit of time talking about the cure because that's the way Paul does it. And he does it for a reason. But he says the diagnosis is, uh, if you look down at your page, you can probably see them popping off the page at you. Maybe they resonate with you. Hopefully some of them resonate with you. But he says we are people who suppress the truth, which means we bury the evidence. And he's not just talking about, like, if you have a friend who says, I'm an atheist, God doesn't exist. He's not just talking about people who say, um, you know, God doesn't exist, I'm suppressing the evidence. He's talking about all of us. Uh, where there's some inconvenient truths, particularly the fact that God is king. He's a good king, but he's king, which means he has authority, which means he has rights over us. He's our creator. It means he kind of designed us to function a certain way, which means he has the right to tell us the way we're meant to thrive, which threatens me telling me how I was made to thrive, which threatens my kingship. Paul says we have an authority problem with God when he says we suppress the truth, even though it's plain. No human being is a stranger to God, the God of the Bible. Every human being knows him. If you have an atheist friend, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Everybody knows God. The question is, what have we done with him? The question isn't, is there evidence for God? The question is, what have you done with the clear evidence? But he says, part of, part of what's going on inside of us is that we exchange the truth for a lie. Now, at this point, all of this might seem a little bit abstract to you. You're like... Maybe you grew up in the church, you're like, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm born in sin or whatever. Uh, I get it. I'm easily tempted. 
but it kind of still remains a little bit fuzzy right now. Okay, how does this apply to me? How do I actually see this uh, in, in our lives with what we do? And so we need to dig a little bit deeper into exactly what Paul puts his finger on is the root of, of why we do what we do, is the root of what went wrong with all of us, with every human being. And so uh, here's what Paul says. He kind of says it's a slide. He says, in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. I've already talked about that. And he says, we become futile in our thinking. And we exchange the glory of God with lies. And here's the whammy where he gets super specific. He says, our problem is actually a worship problem. He says, we worship creatures. Remember, he's kind of like tongue-in-cheek a little bit, like little birdies and little animals and little created things, even created things like intimacy and love and acceptance and power and money and control. Talk about that in a little bit as well. But he says, we have fallen in love with the created thing and we think that the maker of that beautiful created thing is ugly. And though we have fallen in love with the tiny little product, we think that the one who designed it uh, is bad. Though this little thing gives us life, we think that the one who created it takes life. And it's insanity. Now, if worship is just something you do, like Tuesday nights at RUF, Sunday mornings at church, maybe you read your Bible in the mornings, whatever. If worship is just something you do, then this isn't that big of a deal. It's just a Tuesday night, Sunday morning, five minutes a morning deal. Okay? But... If worship is who you are as a human being, if God made you to worship constantly, if you are a worship-driven, worship-animated human being, then this is a really big deal, right? Like, if my appendix goes bad, it's not a big deal because I don't really use it, my body doesn't need it, and it can get taken out. If my heart goes bad or my lungs, that's a really big problem. Paul is saying worship is at the very core of your purpose for having a pulse, is to worship, to love, to crave, to thirst, to hunger, to enjoy. Those are all worship words. And he says that this is actually where the chaos of sin has caused the most confusion. It's tangled everything up into a big ball that you can't find the other end of the rope at. And it just confuses everything. And so listen to the slide he talks about, the slow slide, the snowball effect of this worship problem. He kind of traces all the surface symptoms back to the root. He says, we suppress the clear evidence about God. Then he says, we, we dishonor God. We're, in, we're ungrateful to God. We don't live in a constant posture of, God is so good. Look what he's done. Look who he is. Look what he's given to me. We live lights out to him. So he says we dishonor God with ingratitude. And then he says we become futile in thinking. This is why your mind alone can't lead you to salvation. This is why philosophers have, do, and always will search for truth. And many philosophers will end at a place in their career just where they started, not knowing truth. I'm not saying philosophy is bad. I'm saying if you think that your mind alone, because Paul says it's bent and broken, and it doesn't tell you the truth anymore. If, you, if, you're, if you're waiting on your mind alone to lead you, or logic alone, or reason alone to lead you somewhere, it can't. It's broken. It's like a totaled car. Still looks like a car. Still has tires. Doesn't go anywhere. So he says our, our thinking becomes futile. Ooh, and then it gets deeper. Here's where we get close to home. He says our hearts are darkened, which means the lights went out in the control center. The power goes out in your very core of who you are as a person. 
and who you are as an individual. Darkness came in. It's like all the windows were shut, all the doors were shut, all the ventilation was shut, and it's just claustrophobic and shut off from life now. And then he says, then, with our minds, uh, our hearts darkened, our minds futile, our, our eyes suppressing truth, then, he says, it's like the deception is complete and the virus goes malignant and it just spreads everywhere. He says, then we exchange the glory, the beauty. You ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls and you just, you're like, you have to turn your head to take it all in. That's glory. Glory is something that makes you feel small because it's so amazing. He says, we exchange the glory of God for little lies and begin to worship. And then if you read down to verse 29 and 32, that was the part that's just hard to hear, right? You're like, please speed up so we can be done with this passage. Chaos just flushes in. He first talks about sexual chaos. And he's not picking on homosexuality here. You need to hear that. The Bible says a lot more about homosexuality than just this passage. Paul's not picking a fight or taking a cheap shot. Paul is saying, here's a, here's a teaching illustration or example for all of us to kind of understand how chaos has come into good stuff and turned it against itself so that now it doesn't bring happiness, it brings sadness. Now it doesn't bring life, it brings death. And he says, look, the way that God has ordered his world for human beings to flourish and thrive like a plant in a greenhouse, it's all on its end now. And God made men for women and women for men, and he's saying, look at this, it's all chaotic now. That's, it's kind of him pointing to that and saying, here's an example of it. But if you think, well, Paul's just picking on, uh, on gay people here. Uh, no, he's not, because look where he goes next. Did you feel exposed in any of those adjectives? Or nouns, gossips, slanderers, liars, foolish people, disobedient to our parents, committed to our own interests, willing to run over our roommates or our brothers or sisters or new friends to get what we want? That's where Paul goes next, and he says, these are all the symptoms. This is the chaos that just comes in, chaos like if you know what's going on in Iraq right now. Once the leadership and the king falls, chaos comes. It's a vacuum, and just every kind of disorder, every facet of our humanity is chaos, and can't, it, it, it doesn't function like it's supposed to anymore. It does, Paul never says sex is bad. He never says intimacy is bad. He never says friendships with another guy or friendships with another girl are bad. He says when we make that stuff, as C.S. Lewis says, the end of the rainbow, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we are always after to give us life, that is when it kind of gets on top of us, puts us in a nasty wrestling move and begins to dominate our lives. So here's the point. We've talked a lot about what's wrong, right? We've talked, this is the diagnosis, If you're honest, you have to admit that's you. Here's the hope. Some of you have been afraid your whole life that if God ever figures out the way you really are, he'll turn his back and run. Are you a little bit encouraged that God seems to be in on the joke? He seems to know what life is like. And he brings up the topic. That's actually a very encouraging thing. We'll see in in just a second how it's encouraging, but... God isn't like this aloof grandfather who's like, oh, my grandkid's the best. He's actually more aware of you than you are aware of you. He knows the ins and outs. He alone can untangle the knot. Uh, 
I want to go back to that Ebola story with the villagers because it wasn't just that they suspected the doctor that made them reject the diagnosis. Worship is why they rejected the doctors. Wow, there's a far-fetched idea. Prove it. Okay. The reason why a lot of those villagers pushed the doctors, pushed the only people that could cure what's devastating their bodies, the reason they pushed them out isn't just because they were suspicious. The reason is because uh, if you get the scarlet letter of Ebola put on you, guess how many people would like to be around you? Guess how many people believe that you've been cured if you do survive? Uh, you are ostracized. You are a pariah. You are cast out. You are a nobody. You might as well have died because no one wants to be around you. And so if you love and crave the acceptance of the community and your status in a group, would you ever accept such a scarlet letter? You would rather say, I just have a cold. I'll take care of myself than to say, I have this thing that's going to keep me from getting what I love. Uh, or, or respect. If you have Ebola, how'd you get Ebola? Their love for respect didn't, it didn't free them. It had enslaved them to the point that they weren't free to say, I have it. So they had to say they don't have it. And these other things control over their lives. They wanted to, to be able to say, I want to go here, and I want to go there, and I want to go there, just like we all do. But if you say you have Ebola, you're stuck in quarantine. You don't go anywhere. So it was all of these little worships, these, 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 things that, these good things that have become beautiful, end of the rainbow kind of things. I have to have it or I'm going to come unglued that made them literally seal their fate. Okay, now you might be thinking, Ben, I get, your, I get your point. You're trying to prove a point here, but these are little villages. They're literally, a lot of them in the middle of the jungle. We're in America. We're very educated. We're at college. We don't, we don't fall for stuff like that. We know why doctors come. Well, here is, uh, here is something that kind of shows you that we are all worshipers through every single facet of our life. Take the most scientific, objective, laboratory-oriented people in America. And here's a story of them worshiping their way through their research. Uh, the National Institute of Health. Some of you, this is going to be nap time. You can check out for two minutes. I'm going to talk about science stuff. The National Institute of Health is the big government agency that gives money. Some of you get this money in your labs on campus. They give you money to do research to find vaccines and cures for cancer and stuff like that. Okay. So they have been giving out all this money to colleges around America for like decades. And they were finally like, hey, maybe we should see if the research we're paying for is accurate. Uh, and, and so they went back and they said, we're going to take the 65 most landmark, cutting edge, earth shattering cancer studies. The studies that people are using that is driving your doctors and how they treat your mom or your dad or your grandparents with their cancer. Those studies, New England Journal of Medicine. They said, we're going to go back and, and try to replicate the results of these 65 landmark cancer studies. Now, you know that the, the pillar on which science stands is reproducibility. If researcher A gets these results, all of the other researchers should be able to get the exact same results if the conditions are the same, right? All right. Everyone's awake still. Wow, even the liberal arts majors. OK, so here's the deal. What percentage of those 65 studies do you think were reproduced? When down to the brand of test tube was the exact same, same conditions, same researchers. Six out of 65 were able to be reproduced by anybody. 
six out of 65, less than 10% of landmark breaking news studies that say like caffeine cures cancer or causes cancer, those kind of studies you're always hearing about, less than 10% the government found were able to be reproduced. Now, here's the deal. They, they said, and I'm about to read you a quote from this, but they said it's not because of fraud. It's not because scientists were, like, lying. These were good-hearted scientists that were trying to be good scientists. They're trying to follow the data and see where it leads. But they're human beings, and they can't stop being worshipers. They can't stop being human beings because they were made to worship. So how do you see it? In, in a sophisticated Western laboratory, instead of kind of a tiny little village in the jungle? Well, this is how. This is the quote of the, of the author of the article. He says, so what's going wrong? Well, not fraud. But he said, instead, uh, we found that the scramble for funding and fame, the scramble chasing the end of the rainbow to find funding and fame has resulted in increasingly lax standards for reporting research results. He goes on to say, to obtain funding, a job, a promotion, or tenure, researchers need a strong publication record, often including their name on the front of the study. Ben Coppage, Dr. Ben Coppage, authored this land-breaking cancer research study. So he said it, it often uh, needs that first authored high-impact publication. And he said the publishers of these journals are pushing people to have sexy, uh, soundbite, compelling headline results. Who wants to publish a cancer study that says all of these promising things we thought would lead to good results didn't lead to good results? Sorry. Who wants that in their journal? The publisher wanted a higher readership. The researchers wanted funding to have more researchers. The researchers wanted their name on a piece of paper so their colleagues would respect them. Do you see how worship is always in play? You don't get to check it at the laboratory just because you're a scientist. You don't get to check it uh, just because you're an engineering major. You don't get to check it uh, because uh, you're not a religious person or whatever. You are a worshiper. And even when you try to control and extract all of that from it, you're going to find something to worship. And so they do it in the jungles. We do it in the laboratories here. What about us? What about this past summer? What are the things? Well, I don't have to, I'm not going to give you an exhausting list because Paul will touch on these things later on in the letter. You should come back. Uh, but a few of them are this. What compromises do we make to fit in the first week or two of school? You remember all the stories, hey, have you seen this movie? Little things, hey, have you seen this movie? Hey, have you ever been here? And you're like, yeah, I've been there. No, you haven't been there. No, you haven't seen that movie. That's why you're laughing awkwardly when they make jokes and stuff about it. But little, comp- that's a, I mean, it's a little innocent example, but little compromises where our love of this person wanting me and thinking that I am cool and matter, I'll do anything. Paul says, gossip. I'll gossip if it makes you like me more. I'll slander if it makes you like me more. Um, I will lie if it prevents you from messing up my schedule. Kind of an idolatry or chasing the rainbow with time is the beautiful thing you've fallen in love with. Or if intimacy is the beautiful thing you've fallen in love with. But you, you fall in love with intimacy and you don't really care about people anymore. And so porn is a beautiful outlet to get intimacy without people. Relationship with no investment. Relationship with no cost. Here's the thing. I think God would actually 
have us confess a lot juicier things than we do. Instead of saying, God, I cut again, or I threw up my food again uh, because I feel so guilty or so ashamed of how I look, or um, I looked at porn again, I masturbated again, whatever, whatever, whatever the issue is, instead of us just kind of informing God about what we did, he would love to hear the confession of what's beneath the surface on the iceberg. Lord, I'm in love with all the wrong things. I have fallen head over heels in love with created things to the point that you look ugly, you look bad, you look boring, and they are the end of the rainbow. There's a confession that I think the Lord delights to hear because then you're actually being honest. That's the diagnosis. That's where Paul points us. Um, Our worship is dislocated. You should expect to worship as well as a pitcher should expect to pitch a perfect game with a dislocated shoulder. The pitcher is only on the baseball field to pitch. That's his his purpose for being there. And if his shoulder is dislocated, it still can do some shoulder things. It holds its arm on, kind of moves his hand a little bit, but he can't pitch. The reason you're on the field, the reason you're on planet Earth is to worship, to enjoy a God who is worthy of every ounce of enjoyment and worship. But you and I can't do it because we, are dis- we have a dislocation of our soul, a dislocation of our, sh- of, our, of our worship. Okay, so I told you, Paul talks a lot about diagnosis. We would. Now we move into talking about cure and our response to that uh, before we wrap up. Were you thrown off a little bit about the language about God being wrathful and angry? Have you tried to make sense of the God of the Bible by erasing all of that stuff out of the Bible? Because how can he be compassionate and merciful and gracious and also hate the stuff that my heart's full of? How can he uh, love me and also pour out his anger? His anger being revealed against all these things that I'm so familiar with that I stink of every day. Okay. If you love something with a passionate, fierce, hot love. The more you love it, the more furious you get when anything defiles it. Anna and I are about to have a little boy. I have not met him yet, but I bet when I meet him, anything that threatens him, whether it's a sickness or a bully's words on the playground or he grows up and somebody else fights him, you had better believe if I love my son, I'm going to be all over that. I'm going to be furious Some of you know how true this is because your parents never got angry on your behalf and it's broken you because they were indifferent. And you said your whole life, all I wanted is for my mom or my dad to give a rip, to show some emotion when I was threatened. Do you remember last week when we talked about Walt Disney and that story about Mary Poppins and saving Mr. Banks? He said... Mr. Travers, you've got to give Mary Poppins to me. The reason why is I would never tarnish a story that I cherish. God cherishes your story. He cherishes his people. He cherishes those who bear his image. He cherishes his world. That's why he's making all things new. And so when, they're become, when, when graffiti gets put on it, when vandalism happens, when evil makes chaos of his order 
He is furious. He is fighting mad. And the reason, and, and the problem is we're complicit in this. We're part of that problem. We have aligned ourselves against him. So what do we do? Because we have become part of the people that his anger is aimed at because we are the graffiti artists. We are the vandals. Against him, against relationships. The cure comes. God's anger is a good thing. He wouldn't be good if he wasn't angry at the kind of crap that's happening in the world right now, the kind of crap that's happened to you. Thank your lucky stars that God is angry at what's happening to the world. And thank your lucky stars. Paul says more than just God's anger has been revealed from heaven. What does he say in verse 16 and 17? Read it. What else has been revealed? In fact, Paul says it before he says the anger of God has been revealed against all ungodliness. He says the righteousness of God has been revealed. It is the power of, it is his power for your salvation. And so the context of this whole confrontation between doctor and patient who needs to be persuaded that this is the true diagnosis, this whole confrontation is taking place against a backdrop of gospel grace where God comes to you and before he says he's angry, he says, I have shared all that is right with me to cover all that is wrong in you. And I did it free. I don't take money for this thing. I don't take performance. I don't take paybacks. I give. That's the cure. It's what we talked about last week. This God who breaks into our little village, who gets in our face, who loves you enough to tell you the truth. If you saw a doctor run away from that village and never tell the people they were sick and dying, you would think that doctor is full of himself. God is the God who runs into the village. And he says some things that we often misunderstand as him being evil and being bad. But he's actually loving you. And he's preparing you to come to the doctor to get the cure. Um, I want to look at how all these things come together Because there's also, Paul says at the very end, there's a response that we have. You get that confusing stuff where he says this gospel is by faith, for faith. What does that mean? It means our response to this gospel begins in faith and ends in faith. From beginning to end, it's about faith. Which is basically, to use our metaphor, do you trust the doctor? Do you trust his diagnosis? Do you trust he's for you? Do you trust he knows what he's doing to put you back together and to make you right with him forever? That's the kind of stuff uh, that, that, that Paul's talking about when he says from faith for faith. And so what does this look like? Let me tell you a story instead of explaining it. Uh, I lived in Philadelphia for four years before I moved here. Um, I love Philadelphia. It is an amazing city, amazing culture. It's a messy city. It's got sharp edges. People have bad tempers. It's a little dirty, a lot of crime some places. But I love Philadelphia. Here's one reason why. If you saw the Facebook group earlier and you got a chance to watch the video, I put it on the NMSURUF Facebook page. If you didn't, put it on your phone immediately after and watch it. I watched it twice today. I'm not a softie. This is about the only video that I consistently cry during, and I did twice today. And the reason why is it, it captures better a God who breaks into the chaos of all of our misdirected love and idolatry with something more beautiful that reorganizes and settles and orders all of the mess. So in 2010, in 2010, four years ago, uh, 
there was a big thing going around the nation called uh, flash mobs or, or random acts of culture. You know, like the prisoners in uh, Indonesia did like uh, the Michael Jackson moonwalk and stuff. And uh, 650 opera singers and, and choral singers from all across these different symphonies and orchestras and everything else in Philadelphia, they kind of secretly went to Macy's in downtown Philadelphia. See the video to get the picture. The Macy's in downtown Philadelphia is gigantic. It looks like the White House on the inside. It's like, I don't know, 10 stories tall. It's just, just this gigantic marble columns, gold-plated stuff. It was made back in the 20s when they had money to burn. And it was just like the barons built this thing. In that Macy's is the world's largest pipe organ. Also when they used to play pipe organ music to make you spend more money. Uh, the world's largest pipe organ. It has tens of thousands of pipes in all the walls. So you are surrounded. The whole building shakes. And every day at noon, they play this little 30-minute concert that sounds like elevator music. Well, one time during Christmas, 650 of these symphony and opera and orchestra and, and choral singers kind of secretly filtered out amongst all of the crowds. People who, if you saw them, you would say, these guys are worshiping. They're totally, they, the next purchase is going to like bring them to the end of the rainbow. They get the next cooking item in their house. The next outfit's going to do it for them. It's kind of the American consumeristic material culture. It's a room full of people worshiping. Worshiping creative things. And this little stupid 30-minute elevator music, boring pipe organ thing kind of ends. And then the guy lays on the keys and he starts to play the first opening notes of, the, of, Messiah, of Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. You heard it, right? Christmas time. Uh, he starts playing this music, and out of nowhere, it's like if 10 of y'all just stood up and started singing, we were all in on it. They start belting out the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. They say that the Lord, our God, is omnipotent, he reigneth, king of kings and lord of lords. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The whole thing. People are taking out their cell phones and taking videos of this. People are looking around. And again, this is a massive building. They're on all the floors, all five floors singing. And you're surrounded by it. And they're just, everybody stops what they're doing. And everybody has a smile on their face, and a lot of the people begin to sing along with them. Because in the midst of their worship, of all of these chaotic, stupid, dinky little things, they heard a better song. And it was an overpowering song that broke into the midst of them pursuing after the next outfit, the next pot. It's going to give you the great kitchen you've always wanted or whatever. You'll get that when you get a few years older. All of y'all will be wanting to have great kitchens. It's a thing. I'm sorry. Um, but this better song, this better story, it broke into, it invaded that idolatry. It invaded the false worship that we've been talking about all night. It broke in, and it stopped everybody in their tracks, and they're all craning their necks. And I guarantee you, people are still talking about it. It's got 8 million views on YouTube. And it's gorgeous to watch. That is the gospel. It comes into a world of noise and chaos and misordered worship. 
into a world of gossipers and slanderers and idolaters and people with same-sex attraction. They don't know what to do with it. It comes into a world full of anxious, insecure, weak, shamed people. It comes into the world of people who really do think that if you get to a certain weight or if you look at porn enough, you're going to arrive and life's going to be great forever. It comes to you kind of people and it sings a better song. One that if you have ears to hear, you can't help but respond by faith, which faith for those people look like turning from this outfit and listening to that. It looked like being caught up in this bigger, better, more beautiful thing that's going on and leaving behind all of these lesser pursuits. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and he says it's by faith from beginning to end. Your entry point into this story, into the hallelujah chorus, into the music of God making all things new, including you, every square inch of your inside and your outside. Your entry point is looking to Jesus by faith, being persuaded that he is who he says he is, that he's able to cure, that he's willing, that he loves to cure. Do you agree with the diagnosis? Do you trust the doctor? Do you need the cure? That's Paul's question to you tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, if we're honest, we know this cure, this uh, diagnosis fits us. Uh, We do pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us the grace and the courage to know that we can actually, uh, if, if this is coming to us in a context of grace and mercy, then we can actually bear to hear these really hard words. We also pray that you would break in that you would overpower all of these ugly and chaotic and sad songs that we're caught up in, that you would overshadow it with a better, more beautiful story. One of you coming to us, broken people, and making everything new, making us right with you, and over time, putting us back together. We pray that you would do these things. We pray that you would increase our faith, our planet, where it doesn't exist. We ask this in your name. Amen.